The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I am your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, aka Timothy Toastmaster, excited and committed to bringing you informative, inquisitive, and just plain fun positive talk radio. So here we go. Hello, Anteater Nation. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI's Vice Chancellor of Strategic Communications and Public Affairs, Rhea Carlson. As the university's chief communications, marketing, and public relations officer, she reports directly to the chancellor and serves on the chancellor's cabinet. She joined UCI in 2012 after serving nearly 20 years as a chief communications officer for multiple publicly traded corporations. And before that, she started her career in television news, aka if you're old school, Mary Tyler Moore will hopefully get to talk a little bit about that. She also serves and has served on multiple nonprofit boards. Several months ago, Chancellor Gilman announced that she would be retiring soon, and he was remarkably complimentary on how very important her counsel had been to him over the years. Her official retirement date is now set for April 1st, 2022, so we thought it would be a perfect time to talk about her career and the evolution of strategic communications at UCI and in higher education in general. I've been looking forward to this interview for a while. Welcome to UCI Conversations, Vice Chancellor Carlson. How are you today? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you today. Oh, super. Thank Thank you for all you've done for the university over the years. Um, it's wonderful to have you as part of our family. Oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you very much, Vice Chancellor. Well, uh, I always like to start my interviews at the beginning. Where did you grow up and what did you like to do when you were a kid? I'm actually an Orange County local. My family moved to Huntington Beach in 1968, and it was mostly swampland and cheap tract houses at that time. Um, and we, we bought one of um, those very early cracker box houses that at the time nobody wanted because it was too close to the beach and built on a swamp. <laughs> and uh, it was a wonderful place to grow up because the beach was my playground. 
it was one of those eras where you would, you know, just ride your bike all day during the summer and come right. home when the street lamps came on. Right. So, yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, very, yeah. Yeah. Very good memories of Orange County at that time. And I actually remember, you know, UCI, you know, when it opened does, or when it was new. Probably right. Not memories of the opening, but when it was new and I took a field trip to UCI when I was in middle school so I could uh. get that you know, college exposure. Yeah. Um, it's so wonderful to see what it has become. I'm, I'm very proud, um, not only as an employee, but as a member of the community. Yes. You know, um, I remember also, I grew up in Orange. And so when we go to Corona Del Mar, you know, my dad would drive us in the station wagon. And it, we knew that the school was over that cow pasture hill but you didn't exactly know where in fact it was always kind of a mystery like how do you get to uci it's just so amazing and you know there are farmhouses and fashion island wasn't there and all that stuff it was crazy so oh i remember and i remember my family um and i used to drive to san diego sometimes and the if you recall the Fleur building was there right. in irvine it's now park place near jamboree and the 405 but it was actually in the middle of nowhere at that time. And we'd all wonder like, who would want to go to work here? Where, you know, we are out in the middle of nowhere. Totally. And, yeah. And it's so fun to, yeah. uh, to see what it is. It's like, yeah, now. there yeah. was a orange County airport and then you drive right. a little bit more and then the floor and it had that huge grass lawn. It was just right. like, wow. And that modern building, they can't really even see anymore. If you look at the historical photos of the groundbreaking when President Johnson arrived, I mean, Jamboree was basically a dirt road <laughs> and, um, you know, the, and his helicopter landed in this uh, ranch and everybody went down this dirt road to folding chairs to break the ground of the new university. It's quite a story. Yes, yes. I recently interviewed Professor McGaw. Uh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And yeah. he mentioned that he was at that event, you know, that wasn't that long after the assassination of President Kennedy. And he said the sharpshooters were on top of the buildings. And uh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. well, did you always know you go to college? You know, I was the first in my family to go to college. So I always wanted to. My mom was a single mother. And she really stressed that it was important for me to have my independence. So I never knew I was always going to go to college, but it became pretty clear that I wanted to go and I needed to go. And I was very fortunate to get some financial aid that helped me get through. So I am a big believer in education and very proud of UCI making such a difference in so many people's lives. Wonderful. How did you pick USC? I wanted to major in journalism and mm. uh, they had a journalism school. I also got into UCLA, but they didn't have a journalism school. I was, I was accepted as an undeclared major and USC just won me over. I mean, mm. it was, uh, you know, they, they were very good marketers and they mm. offered some financial aid and their journalism school was in very high regard. Gotcha. And you also majored in political science, right? I did. I, I originally wanted to go to law school. So uh, I wanted to be a communications attorney. So I double majored. And um, after graduation, I got what I thought at that time was my dream job. And uh, pretty soon just life got in the way. Um, you know, you get car loans and mortgages and pretty soon um, law school just wasn't attainable at that time. Gotcha. Was it at the television news part when you got out of yeah. school? 
Yes, I had interned at KNBC and they offered me a job upon graduation. Gotcha. So yeah. after you graduated, what did you do there? Yeah, after I graduated, I was offered a job as a talent coordinator on a talk show, which was called The Sunday Show. And at sure. that time, it had been on the air for several years. And the hosts were just, you know, a cavalcade of stars that came through LA. Tom Brokaw had been a host. Brian Gumble had been a host. And when I joined, Pat Sajak was a host before he went to Wheel of Fortune. I know I'm really aging myself. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> who remembers what Pat Sajak did before Wheel of Fortune? It's been... He was, he was the weatherman on Channel 4. That's right. And on, uh, and on Sundays, he hosted our talk show. So I was uh, the talent coordinator for that show and later yeah. became the associate producer. Okay. So sounds very Mary, Mary Tyler Moorish. It was great. I mean, I really, at that time, it really was my dream job. I wanted to work in television news. I had interned in television news and then was offered this job upon graduation. And I had a wonderful time. It was a live show. It was kind of a, a, a today show format, but it was on Sundays. Right. And, you know, and we had a, and it was live. So, you know, once you did a show on Sunday, you started all over again. And I, right. I kind of liked that, you know, um, right. you, you could learn from the mistakes, but didn't, you couldn't dwell on them. Right. And, uh, and uh, I was there for a couple of years and then the deregulation um, occurred. And that meant that local stations really didn't have to have the type of public affairs programming that was required for licensure. And the network just wanted to, to uh, show football on Sundays. So we had to wind down the show. Gotcha. So you were at a career crossroads. Did you just put feelers out there and it, it took you out of television or what? Yeah, you know, um, I from the days of booking guests on that show before I was associate producer, I made a lot of contacts mm -hmm. in the public relations field, folks who wanted to put their clients on the show. And I was fortunate to get a lot of offers from public relations firms. Mm -hmm. I didn't think that's what I wanted to do as a career, but most of the jobs I was offered in television were project-based and I wanted something that was permanent. Mm -hmm. So I decided to take the leap and join a public relations agency and found that I was pretty good at it and mm -hmm. stayed. <laughs> so that set the, the, a new course for my career. Gotcha. So... Uh, how long were you at the public relations? Was it just one public relations company? Or? Yeah, it, it was just one. It was a public relations and advertising company. Mm -hmm. And it was a wonderful learning experience. I can't say I really enjoyed it per se, mm. but boy, did I learn a lot. And what I learned most was how to juggle multiple projects at the same time. I'd have mm -hmm. several clients. You had to keep all the clients happy. You had to do good work or you would lose that business. And it really helped me organize my time and understand customer service. Around that time, the I'm going to age myself again, Kevin, I'm sorry, but the Orange County Performing Arts Center was being built. Um, it's now called Segerstrom Center, um, but it was being built in Costa Mesa. And I was, you know, just admiring all the work and the effort that was going into it. And kind of on a lark, I sent a letter to the president and they needed me. I mean, it was just kind of uh, very fortuitous. I wrote a letter. The next thing I know, I got a call and I got the job as a public relations manager there. So I stayed there during the opening 
And uh, it was a wonderful experience. Wow. So you were there on opening night for the I was there on opening night. It was probably the best business meeting I've ever attended. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I made and a lot of us who were there on opening night, which was, yeah. you know, September 29th of 1986, are wow. still friends. It was a wonderful, wonderful evening. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I was actually there myself. And, Were you? Uh, I was. Oh, wow. Yeah, I actually at the time worked at Deloitte, which was a high rise that yes. looked at. We actually watched it be built. It was quite exciting. You're and right. I was actually a member of Center 500. It was like the young business. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. It was a great time. And we had wonderful people walking through. And Right, uh, right. I'm sure you remember Leontine Price was the performer at that event. And it was really a wonderful experience for me. Yeah, yeah. Oh, very good. At what point do you leave? Do you go to FHP? Is that the... Well, actually, I caught the eye of Bowers Museum because mm. they were going through this big expansion. Mm. And they lured me away because they wanted someone who would help them through their expansion building phase and reopening. That particular expansion did not happen on schedule. Mm. Um, they did ultimately expand, but not in the late 80s. Mm -hmm. And one of the board members was the brother of FHP's chairman. And he recommended me for a job at FHP. And that's how I got into corporate life. That was 1989. Gotcha. So you worked for a few healthcare companies and then your job before coming to UCI is at Orange County company Ingram Micro, the world's largest technology distributor. And you were there for about 11 years. I was. I, at that point, are you the head of public relations and strategic communications for them or what? Yes, I was uh, the head of all communication, including investor relations and the global branding lead and the chief strategist. So it was a big job. And, you know, we were in an expansion mode for part of that time. And for part of that time, we were in a contraction mode and both are equally challenging. And so again, lots to learn, a good lesson in how to position the company based on what's happening at that time. Um, a good lesson in strategic management, meaning here's what the company is going through. Here are the goals. Here's where it is. Here's where it want, wants to be. How do I help the company achieve those goals? So I was very fortunate to be at that company at that time when it was going through so much. Gotcha. Do you feel, is it ebb and flow for this kind of a position? Or, you know, I, I guess particularly back then you're in industry. Is high pressure a, a good description of it? Well, yes, at Ingram Micro, certainly it was. The, you know, the company had operations in 50 countries and sold products in over 100. Huge footprint. Mm. Um, and I joined the company in early 2001, just as the technology bubble was bursting. Mm. So you had this high rolling company all through, you know, the high tech growth of the late 90s. And then I come on board and the company needs to contract. Uh -huh. So um, at that point, we were shutting down operations. It was very, very stressful because people's livelihoods were at stake. And we had to communicate that in the most empathetic way we possibly could. And then, you know, 
we hit a trough and then we came back into growth mode and we started expanding again. And then you had to communicate that um, because people's livelihoods were being affected again because they were stretched and they had to take on more responsibility. So the challenges of communication always change, but your guiding light is always the, the goals and the priorities of the organization. So your communication had to help the company move forward and hit those goals. So if you kept that in, in mind, as well as the human factor, the compassion, the empathy, and you tried to find that secret sauce that would be compassionate and empathetic, but still help the company move forward and hit its goals, that was always the sweet spot. Yes, yes. Excuse me for a moment, Rhea, while I update our audience. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI's Vice Chancellor of Strategic Communications and Public Affairs, Rhea Carlson. We've been just getting to know her and talking about her career trajectory, and we're basically to the point where you've been at Ingram Micro for about 11 years, and then you come to UCI. How does that happen? Well, Ingram was at a point, it was looking for um, acquirers. It wanted to be, it, you know, it, it wanted to move forward with a parent rather than be publicly traded. And um, I had been there 11 years and I decided that it was time for me to change as well. And I knew a lot of folks at UCI because Ingram Micro had a program where it paired it's up and coming executives with faculty at UCI. And I worked with faculty members at UCI to teach our up and coming executive strategy and marketing. And I had a lot of contacts at the business school, including at that time, Andy Policano. And I knew that they had this job opening and I just decided this would be a wonderful exclamation point on my career. I had so much admiration for UCI and um, I was a big believer in higher education. And I decided to apply thinking that, well, you know, I don't have any higher education experience. So I'm going to give this a try and see what happens. But I wasn't really expecting to move forward because I wasn't sure if I was qualified. Gotcha. And was the position for the vice chancellor position? Yes. Uh-huh. So once you got here, did you feel fully prepared or was it a horse of a different color once you're in it? Well, certainly it was a different culture and I was expecting that. And I knew that higher education was, especially public higher education, was at a crossroads, especially when it came to marketing. You know, for many, many years, public institutions were being funded by the state. Um, and that was certainly the case for UCI. In fact, I remember when I was researching for my interviews and I was reading the strategic plan for UCI at that time, the number one assumption that was the foundation for that plan was that there would uh, be robust funding from the state of California. Wow. And you know, we know what occurred after the financial crisis of 2009, a lot of that uh, state funding uh, was no longer available. And so a lot of public institutions were thinking about marketing in a way they never had to. And UCI was really a front runner there. I have to applaud both the administration and the trustees of the foundation who felt that they really needed to get ahead 
and hire some professional marketing talent because the state of California was not going to provide the funding that it had in the past. Mm. Um, but the, so the culture was, was still, for the most part, in kind of the pre-2009 phase. Mm. And I was a, you know, kind of the Martian who was coming in from the corporate world. Mm. And I, you know, I, I had to learn new skills. I had to learn that the hierarchy of a corporation does not apply here, that there's this shared governance model. Mm. And that took a little bit of time for me to understand that. And the wonderful thing about coming, however, is that the faculty and the administration were so open. I think everybody understood that times were changing and they understood for the most part that marketing talent was now needed because there needed to be a new approach to philanthropy. And most everyone welcomed me with open arms and really helped me through that process. So my thanks to everyone at UCI who saw this, you know, kind of this, this person from the corporate world, this Martian from the corporate world and embraced her and said, okay, this is, this is how the culture works. Let me help you through it. And I think that made the transition much easier for me. And at the time, the, the UCI chancellor was Michael Drake, right? Correct. He's the one who hired me. And I'm thrilled that he's now the president. He just has this heart of gold and so smart. And I, I just think he's an incredible leader. Yes, yes, yes. So good to hear. So how long was Michael Drake the chancellor and then Howard Gilman came on? I worked for Dr. Drake for two years. Okay. And then Howard Gilman came on board as provost right. about a, a year into my time and then became chancellor in 2014. Gotcha. So Howard and I were kind of new together. Okay. Yeah. Right, right. You know, do they have different styles? Do they have different expectations? They do. Yeah, they, oh. they do have different styles, but not that one is good and one is bad. It's just mm -hmm. that Dr. Drake is, is, um, He's, you know, he's a physician, so he has a bedside manner that is a little more even keel, um, much more academic. And, um, and Howard is, you know, spent his whole career as a member of the faculty. He was the first in his generation to go to college too. So very much a believer in the ideals of higher education, still teaches, but very much someone who wanted to move this university forward. And so he and I were aligned in, we want to be this first choice university. We want, we no longer want, we want to be the gem and hidden gem, but we no longer want to be hidden. And um, I have the utmost admiration for both Dr. Drake and Dr. Gilman, different personalities, but with a singular mission to make UCI truly great throughout the world. All, wow. It always had a stellar reputation from an academic and a research standpoint, but I can't tell you how many times I heard Hidden Gem when I came on board. Wow, 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 that's, that's neat. In the five years I've been involved with UCI, I perceive that communications has exploded exponentially. If I just look at my email box, I just can't believe how it's grown. Is it possible to, to explain, you know, has that been, that's not a surprise, you know, that's, you could have anticipated that or, you know, can you describe from the inside what's been going on 
or do I have it all wrong? <laughs> sure, no, I, I'm, I'm happy to hear it. I wish it wasn't all email, but that's a separate issue. But yes, communications has exploded. When I came on board in 2012, we had a small and mighty communications team. Most of them were journalists and most of them were dedicated to news. And the goal at that time was to promote the faculty's work basically through news writing. And um, that was a perfect strategy for the time, meaning before 2009, that uh, we wanted to make sure that the faculty was better known and that their work was being published. And like I said, most of the, the funding was coming from the state of California. After the financial crisis, there needed to be a transition in the communication strategy. We couldn't abandon the work we were doing on behalf of the faculty. We still had that strategy, but now we needed to really build the UCI brand and make it better known because we needed to um, embrace a philanthropic and branding strategy as well. We needed to move forward to get private funding and do whatever we could to get the, the, the type of exposure for the university that would support that new strategy. So we needed to expand the team and, and include marketing professionals as well as news writing professionals. Yeah. And we needed those news writing professionals to start to embrace a storytelling culture that would move us to content generation as well as news writing. So most of those folks are still with us. So some, a couple have retired, but you probably know Tom Vasich. He's He was with, with us when I arrived. And Tom has been so fabulous. He started his career as a reporter, moved to UCI and was one of our chief communicators through news writing. And now he leads the whole content generation team as well. So news writers, magazine publishers, social media content generators, just the explosion of media. And he has adapted so well to that new media environment. Right, right. So you talk about, you know, when I you know, see descriptions of, of your uh, position, you know, you lead internal and external communications that you've been referring to setting marketing and branding strategies. How about the branding strategies of UCI? That certainly seems like a big, big deal that I, I think you could probably describe better than me, but I definitely am aware of it. It, 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 It's as a hum in the background is, is that a good way to describe it? Or, or please, I'll let you sure. take over. Well, one of the first things I did when I arrived was start a market research program. I needed to understand what our reputation was currently at that time. How did people perceive UCI? What were we known for? What did people think we were good at? Who knew about us? And so one of the, my earliest meetings with Dr. Drake was to ask him for funding for a comprehensive research battery that would include qualitative and quantitative research with a number of audiences. The results of that research were fascinating. Uh, we, well, first of all, we, when, we, um, when we queried students, for example, mm-hmm. we found that the majority of students at that time came to UCI because they didn't get into UCLA. Um, and, you know, that's a huge opportunity. I mean, so out of that came one of the very early goals that we needed to be a top choice institution. We couldn't just be, you know, UCLA's overflow. Four students 
we had to be their university of choice. So that became a very early goal based on that research. We found in Orange County, when we polled the Orange County community, that we scored very high with top of mind awareness. So if you, if you stopped anyone in the street in Orange County and said, name the top three universities in Orange County, UCI would typically be number one unaided. They would just say UCI. But when you drilled down just one step and mm -hmm. said something like, well, what is UCI known for? It was basically crickets. They couldn't say anything. So what mm. we found was that in Orange County, awareness was high, but engagement was very low. Mm. And when we probed further on engagement, you got this very interesting array of answers, meaning like, oh, it's this city on a hill. You can't penetrate it. I've tried to drive around there and always got lost. Mm. Parking is expensive. All these weird answers that had nothing to do with academics or research or values. It was a lot more just logistical concerns. So we felt that that was a great opportunity because it wasn't going to take a lot to engage people, right? You just kind of bring down some of these barriers. You could still stick to focusing on great research and great academics. That wasn't going to change. But we just needed to bring down some of these barriers that made people feel like they couldn't penetrate our walls. And then we found that we really were not known outside of Orange County. I mean, even when we uh, did the research for California, most people had no idea where Irvine was. In fact, even in California, folks thought we were in Irving, Texas. So wow. we, we had a lot of work to do with awareness outside of Orange County. Inside of Orange County, we had to really drive engagement. So we, you know, we, we knew that there was going to be a lot of work to do if we really wanted to go after those philanthropic dollars. People had to know not only who we were, but why we were great and how they could help us be even greater. And so that research created the bones of our brand strategy. And so we started building the strategy based on that research. And that's where you kind of heard, you heard this narrative of brilliance and bright and shine brighter because we were already very bright. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I said, so many people said, oh, we're a hidden gem. We really were a gem. We had mm -hmm. a wonderful reputation, wonderful work, but nobody really knew about us to an extent that we could really drive a successful campaign. So we had to put that branding in motion to support the eventual campaign. Very good. Excuse me one more time, Rhea. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI <laughs> Conversation Show. My guest today is UCI's Vice Chancellor of Strategic Communications and Public Affairs, Rhea Carlson. After 20 years with several publicly traded corporations, Rhea came to UCI 10 years ago and is just talking about the explosion of a, of a new recognition for UCI. And Rhea, boy, it seems like it's been, I mean, I don't want to oversell it, but it seems like it's been a grand slam. I mean, I, I, I can, you know, from somebody on the inside, how would you rate our, ourselves? It just seems like the school is, is being recognized with you know development and fundraising, we are getting 
national and international recognition. We just had a Nobel Prize winner this year who got his PhD at UCI. The, the school continues to, to grow student-wise, faculty-wise. Our, our research is top, top. You know, please, can I hear your insider perspective? Well, thank you. You're so generous, Kevin. Um, I am so proud to be part of this institution. Uh, you are absolutely right. UCI continues to hit home runs. It's always been a, a phenomenal institution, the best of the best, and it just keeps getting better. And now more people know how wonderful we are. And I'm very proud of the work that the strategic communications team has done in order to get us to that place. Our campaign, which launched a few years ago, was very successful. Our branding strategy has been very successful. We're wonderful storytellers. People know us who never knew us before, and they're willing to give money to make us even better. So I agree with your assessment. I mean, it is a grand slam, you know, and I really have to credit everyone who works here for helping us do that. I mean, it's, it takes everyone. It's not just the strategic communications team that communicates in a silo. Everyone has been part of that branding achievement. When you're out in the street talking to your neighbors and talking about the great work we've done, when you're in the airport waiting in line at the jetway and someone notices our ads in the jetway and you start talking about it, which has <laughs> happened to me many times, all of that strengthens our brand. It's just a wonderful institution. And I'm so proud that a slice of my life was spent here. Uh, wonderful. In terms of the evolution of strategic communications for UCI, you know, you obviously keep, oh, I would think that, you know, you kind of keep track of our competitors or, you know, our, our sister brother schools. A lot of schools, I think they were gems, but they were very much out there already, whereas we were a hidden gem. Has anybody come as far as we have in that time? Or I would at least no one that comes to the top of my mind has mm -hmm. come as far as we have. The University of California, of course, is the best public university system in the world. And a lot of our brothers and sisters are coming a long way as well. I mean, you know, Merced, for example, is only 12 years old. But we were truly innovative when it came to strategic communications. I mean, in 2012, there weren't a lot of public universities that had positions like mine. You had a communications team. They, most of them probably didn't serve on cabinet. They reported up to an advancement head. Most of the public universities, their communications function was basically a news writing team. And, you know, we really were ahead of the game in that Dr. Drake at that time and the trustees saw the writing on the wall. They saw that the financial crisis was truly going to change the face of public education. It wasn't just a blip. And they wanted to be prepared. They wanted to be prepared for the new chapter. And my position, you know, was one of the first in a public institution that was truly strategic, that someone came in and aligned the communications function with the strategy of the organization and was at the table when a new strategy was being developed. Mm. And I really have to hand it to Dr. Drake, Dr. Gilman, 
the trustees of the foundation and the faculty who all supported that organizational structure. And now you see more and more public institutions who are embracing that model. Throughout the 10 years, I've gotten a lot of calls from executive recruiters representing public institutions who want to build what we built. And I am very proud of that. Very proud that I'm at a public institution that is also very entrepreneurial, that is willing to bring someone in from the outside and ask them to build something that that may make some people uncomfortable, but they were okay with that. And that says a lot about UCI. Oh, very good. Another part of your job description is managing crises, issues, and reputation efforts. Can you explain that to us just a little bit more and as much as possible, give us examples of your involvement in these? Sure. Well, you know, at at UCI, we're kind of the size of a mid-size or even large city. I mean, at any given time, you have 50,000 people in our community. We have our, our own police department our own hospital now, and we're building another, um, a medical system. So it's inevitable that crises will occur when you have an organization that's so complex and so large. So yes, a lot of my time, especially you know my executive time is spent dealing with issues. Some of them are crises, some of them are not. And that requires a strategy, a proactive stance to catch an issue early and try to address it before it may become a crisis. So a lot of the work that I've done, you know, no one has really heard about, and that's a good thing. <laughs> right. Other, other things that I'll tell you a story about something that became a crisis that shouldn't have, mm. because we didn't think that it was serious enough. And It goes back quite a few years. I'm not sure if your audience remembers it. I think it was 2015, but so it was quite a few years. In 2015, our student government at the time passed a measure that banned flags of any type in the student government offices. Mm -hmm. And this became a huge issue for the conservative media Mm -hmm. because they got a hold of this measure that was in writing and they blew it out of proportion. It it was positioned in the conservative media as UCI will no longer fly the American flag. And our team, you know, we knew the real issue that it was just a measure that banned all flags in the student government offices, not the university as a whole. And so we invited the media to come to the, the campus and see what it really meant. And we had a very good media day, but what we didn't realize at the time, and this has to do with how new media has exploded, that the traditional media who came to campus and saw the real story, they weren't the ones fueling the flames. Mm. So, you know, we had most of our reporters, the Los Angeles Times, the local media, they didn't cover the story. But these new media and the niche conservative media did cover the story, the bright parts of the world. Um, a lot of the online blogs and publications and the influencers. And the story exploded on social media and it was very hard for us 
to get in front of that story, even though it was what we thought at the time, fringe media. And so it was a wonderful lesson of, there is no such thing really as fringe media anymore, that we had to treat all interests, all different types of media as we would traditional media. We had to have that type of outreach. We had to really um, communicate proactively the, the same way that we communicate with the Los Angeles Times because we needed to be able to get a foothold with our story with all forms of media, not just the traditional media. And that became a crisis that shouldn't have become a crisis and probably would not occur today because now we understand this new media environment and um, we're proactive and nurture those relationships just like we did the traditional media of 10 years ago. Yeah, very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Is the Bright Past Brilliant Future fundraising development campaign, is that completely separate from you or do you work hand in hand? How how does that work? We work hand in hand. It is managed and led by the advancement team Mm -hmm. and we provide the communication to support that campaign. Mm, Okay. How about you're going to be retiring very soon Anything that we haven't touched on that you're particularly proud of at UCI or, or in your career? Yeah, well, at UCI, I'm, I'm proudest of the team, the extended team. I think I mentioned earlier that a lot of them were there 10 years ago in a very different environment. And they have flexed and pivoted and all those words that we love now, like true professionals. And they have really become strategic communicators and grown along with the organization. I'm incredibly proud of them and truly honored to work with them. And that includes the administrators and the faculty members who not only supported this effort, but learned as well. A lot of faculty members understand now that they have to be storytellers too, and that they have to be looking for funds and a brand for themselves too. And I just feel like the entire organization has um, taken a leadership role in this regard where we needed to evolve from just a, a public, a really, really good public institution to an institution that, that really leads the world. And that requires not only really, really good research and academics, but also a fabulous sterling reputation that requires care and feeding. Wow. Fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations with my guest, Vice Chancellor of Strategic Communications and Public Affairs, Rhea Carlson. She now tells us the behind the scenes story of bringing a very, very big name to campus. Can you tell us a little bit about when President Obama came for our commencement ceremony? Yes, I would love to. Um, (laughs) You know, I I was part of a wonderful team of a 50th anniversary committee, and it was a cross-functional team. And that committee was in place when I arrived in 2012, and they were in the very early stages of trying to figure out what we were going to do for the 50th anniversary, which was in 2015. And a lot of us said, well, what can we really do to set us apart. I mean, this is much more than just a birthday celebration. 
This is a way for us to really step up to a world stage. And this could be our opportunity. And I love where I love where this is going. Keep going. (laughs) Yeah. And we started talking about, you know, and and me saying, you know, wow, if it it would be wonderful if we just had this incredible kickstart. You know, this research is coming in that you know, we have a great reputation, but nobody knows about it. Everybody, everybody's talking about this hidden gem. What can we do to really showcase how wonderful we are to the world? And I'm, I'm not sure who threw out, well, we could always get the president as a speaker. And I think some whoever threw it out, threw it out as a joke. But some of us in the room said, oh my God, that's a brilliant idea. Yeah. And as we started thinking about it, and I started mapping out a strategy, I realized that there are these wonderful circle of life connections there. If you think about it, we broke ground with President Johnson. President Johnson was in office when the Civil Rights Act was signed. He was in office when Medicare came about. And here at that time, we had a president, first African-American president, and the number one issue on his agenda was healthcare. So you have kind of this circle of life moment with President Johnson back, you know, when ground was broken. And we started mapping out this positioning statement on how we were going to sell the President of the United States to come to Irvine. And, and so we, we put all these points in, a, in paper and we gave it to President Drake and we had to sell him first. We had right. to sell Drake on the idea because yeah. he was the one who was going to be doing the inviting <laughs> and he was he got excited too he's you know uh, he's wonderful and uh, and loves fresh new ideas and was yeah. totally in our corner and we started talking about cabinet and then at cabinet of course you have all these specialists and their job is to ask questions, right? They're all a bunch of executives. That's what executives do. And pretty soon you start, these logistics questions came to the surface. Well, where is he going to speak? We don't have have a stadium. How are we going to do this? What's going on? And we decided, President Drake decided, well, I'm going to invite him. I am going to invite him and we can continue this conversation in the weeks ahead. And you had several people on the room say, fine, invite him. It's such a long shot. We probably won't have to worry about this anyway. So President Drake in the fall, I think it was September of uh, 2013, sent the invitation. And the anniversary committee started thinking about, okay, how are we going to make him say yes? What are we going (laughs) to do? What are we going to do to get a yes? So um, our government affairs folks who are on the committee decided that they would start a letter writing campaign. So they went out to the students, they created postcards, they had students try to lobby the White House to get him to come. We found out that there was an alum in the secretarial force for the the president, and we, we touched base with her. And around that time, Janet Napolitano became president of the UC system, and she had a connection to President Obama. And so we reached out to her and asked for her help, and she was willing to help us. So we tried every single contact and force of nature we could find to help him get to yes. 
And at the same time, we had to prepare for his eventual arrival. I have to credit Chancellor Drake at that time and now Chancellor Gilman, who allowed us to invest in an eventual full all student commencement before we even knew he was coming because we had to prepare in advance, even though we hadn't received his acceptance yet. And as we were working out the logistical detail, it became very obvious that we just did not have the facilities on our campus to make this a safe event. We didn't have a stadium. And so we decided to reach out to Anaheim Stadium and they had a conflict on their calendar for that date. And they decided to work with that person who had the date or that organization that had the date and move them, even though they didn't know the president was coming. So, you know, the stars just aligned. All these people were willing to cooperate with us, even though we didn't know yet that he was coming. And it wasn't until April that he accepted our invitation. So it truly was a wonderful community spirit that got us to that point. It was all the students working together and signing letters and postcards. It was the administration who supported our effort. It was all of the employees who worked together to prepare, even though we didn't know if he was coming. And finally, it was Anaheim Stadium who said yes and moved their schedule around even though we didn't have a confirmation yet, but it was meant to be, and it was wonderful. Fantastic. Were you on this? I should say, Kevin, I'm sorry to, to eat up so much time, but I should say that we hit our goals because that appearance by the president was seen all over the world. We had over 1,700 media impressions just on that day, and it just kept on giving and giving and giving. There were news stories, for months and months and months about that speech and about that event. And really, if you wanted to kickstart a brand, that did it. <laughs> very, 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 very good. Wow. In terms of your entire career, has there been anything like COVID? I mean, it, it, <laughs> please just, can you just give me your impressions? No, there's been nothing like COVID. Um, but, you know, if you want to look at the silver lining from a mm -hmm. professional standpoint, mm -hmm. it was an incredible learning experience. Mm -hmm. Just incredible. In fact, I had been thinking about retiring a few years earlier. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually glad I mm -hmm. did not at that time because I wouldn't have been able to work through the pandemic. And I learned so much. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it really was all encompassing. I, and it, it, from a communication standpoint, it required every single muscle to be flexed. We had to communicate internally. We had to communicate externally. We had to be the source of truth for our community. And when this set in, we decided that that was the position we had to take, that there was so much misinformation out there that we needed to position the UCI as the source of truth about the disease, about what was going to be required, about, you know, how to get a test or a vaccine, what it actually was. And we decided to build 
not only a university website, but we built a website that was called OC COVID, where people could go and get information. We work very closely with our local health administrators. Our health system became, you know, the front lines of the pandemic, and we work very closely with them. Um, I remember so vividly when that first shipment of vaccines came in December of 2020, and our health professionals were one of the first to get that vaccine in Orange County. And, you know, I remember when we had to build basically a mass unit on the medical center grounds in Orange, and those frontline healthcare professionals are absolutely super people. They are, I know it becomes cliche now about the, you know, heroes work here, but they are absolutely heroes and they continue to be putting themselves on the front lines and putting themselves in danger every single day. Talk about pride. I mean, boy, I, I couldn't be prouder of those folks that I work with at the health system. Yeah. Well. Um, but, but yes, they, it was a huge communication uh-huh. challenge. And we had to communicate every single day because Mm -hmm. the news was shifting so rapidly. Yeah. How about Vice Chancellor in terms of uh, your career, in terms of adversity? I think a lot of times students see, you know, upper level top executives. Boy, they seem like a natural. It must have been easy or whatever. Can you just briefly talk about, you know, adversity and, and how you got through it. Was it just a matter of grinding through it or was there anything that got you through in particular? Yeah. Well, you know, I was, uh, I was the only woman on an executive management team of a worldwide corporation. And although I loved, loved, loved my colleagues, there is a lot of adversity to being the only woman in a tech company that is uh, dominated by men. I think you hear a lot of these stories from my women colleagues that there is subtle discrimination, men who, who ask you to leave the room because they wanna tell dirty jokes. I mean, that's, that, that's probably a minor point, but it does make you feel smaller. Mm. And um, to be honest with you, you do just have to stand your ground and grind through it and make mm. yourself known that you should be treated as the men in the room and you are every much a partner whether they want to tell dirty jokes or not where they want to you know go do man things and they don't want women to go with them those types of things although they seem very minor when it happens they add up you know I grew up at a time where women were just getting into the workforce. I mean, it was the, the early 80s when I graduated from college. Mm-hmm. And I have to really hand it to the women before me. You know, my mother was a, a working mother, a single mom, and there was blatant discrimination at that time. Mm-hmm. She had stories about asking for a raise and was told that she didn't deserve a raise because, you know, the man next to her was raising a family, even though she was raising me. Mm-hmm. Um, so but she blazed that trail and it was women of my generation who blazed the trail of the women of today. So I do think that it is going to take time to evolve, but the adversity that I experienced had mostly to do with just very subtle discrimination that was gender-based and it wasn't intentional. It wasn't malicious, 
but it did make you feel a certain way. And you just had to prove yourself even more. I do feel that women of, of my generation had to work twice as hard because they had something to prove. And I'm glad we did. I, I know that you know women are on boards now, not to the extent they need to be, but far more than they were when I first started out. Women are on the executive teams now. One of the wonderful things about working at UCI is that the chancellor's cabinet has probably just as many women as they do men. And that wasn't the case at my prior employer. And I'm really proud that UCI recognizes the need for diversity and inclusion and puts its money where its mouth is. And I, I do think that, that this is evolving, that a lot of corporations are now following UCI's lead and understanding that women and all peoples, people of color, LGBTQ community, need to be represented at the highest levels of the organization. As time goes on and we learn more and more about equity, diversity, and inclusion, it's more is being revealed all the time and the, and the subtleties and it, it's, it's very valuable. Yeah, it is. And, and, you know, I love everybody I've worked with over the years. And like I said, nobody is trying to be malicious or mean, but it is subtle and it does add up. And I think now folks are realizing that all organizations work with teams, that everybody's a partner. We all need to be working towards the goals of the organization and excluding people for whatever reason, even if it's subtle or even if it's done with humor, is not good for the organization. Good. Well, we have very little time left. Do you have plans for your retirement and your spare time? Yes. I, you know, first of all, I, I, I'm going to truly vacation. Um, <laughs> I want to be able to have lunch with my family and friends and not have the phone on the table with me. So that's, that's, a, that's, that's my, my short-term goal. And longer term, I love to write. I love to read. I love historical fiction. And over the years, I've dabbled in writing a book based on a factual incident, but with fictional characters. I've written chapters here and notes there. And I'm thinking that maybe it's time to put it all together and write that book I've always dreamed about. But we'll see. At this point, I'm not in any hurry to sit in front of a computer. But <laughs> I know that there will be a time when I'll be itching to uh, get some work done. So I'm looking forward to that. Vice Chancellor, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful interview. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for everything you've done, Kevin. Thank you and uh, be well and my best to you always. Thank you again to UCI's Vice Chancellor of Strategic Communications and Public Affairs, Rhea Carlson. She may be retiring, but it is obvious to this observer that she has been a key player for the last 10 years as UCI has transformed from being a hidden gem with a bright past to a sparkling star with a brilliant future. Congratulations on a career well done, Rhea Carlson. Hear, hear. And now turning the page, coming up next at the top of the hour is KUCI public affairs host Oswaldo Diaz talking all about well-being and healthy lifestyles. Just a note, amigos, Oswaldo's show is in Espanol. You've been listening to UCI Conversations 
the show that every week explores another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m., right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. For an encore of this show or any of my past shows, simply go to my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com and comments and suggestions are always welcome at kboss at kuci.org. This is your host, Kevin Bostonmeyer, wishing you a pleasant good evening and happy trails. Now take it away, piano man Fred Kaplan with Signifying. <laughs> 